Good morning. Good. Good. To get you dressed in the morning. Yeah. But you can hear me. How's that? No? How's that? Good. What a privilege to be here this morning and to share with you. It was a, a great evening last night, so I'm glad to see all these uh, starry-eyed people out here this morning. Um, so, Tracy broke up with me, <laughs> not now, 21 years ago, um, but it was a good thing, uh, because that's when I properly, properly fell in love with her. <laughs> we started dating in about June of 2001, and we dated for about six months, and I had just been overseas as a director with Top Billing, and I came home, and uh, we went out for supper, and she called me on the way that I was just not treating her right. I was uh, not appreciating her, and uh, she called me out on it all, and we broke up. So just a little while later, you know, me being who I am on New Year's Eve, of course, I met another girl, and she was lovely. And uh, we started, as teenagers today would say, we started talking. So we were talking, and we went to the waterfront to talk. And we were walking through the waterfront holding hands this one time. And she turned to me, and she dropped my hand, and she said to me, you need to go back to your ex. And I looked at her, and I said, do you mind if I drop you at home? Because she could tell that I was still madly in love with Tracy. She knew it must have just been evident. Eventually, with a little help from my sister, Cammie, Tracy agreed to see me again, and she set up a date for us at the Harbour House in Cork Bay. And I think it was just before Valentine's Day, so it was the heat of summer, but it was the cool of the evening. And it was before they enclosed that area, that deck area, with those big windows, so it was open out to the sea. And we were sitting on the balcony, and the sun was, well, it pretty much set behind us, but it was warm, and the waves were crashing, and we had a candle on our table, and I looked across the table at Tracy, and I knew I would never want to be with another woman for the rest of my life. <laughs> Tracy did not have the same epiphany. <laughs> So I had to put some work in, and uh, I had to prove my love to win her back. This year we married 20 years, the best 20 years of my life. Oh. But there was this gap, right? There was this gap between Tracy breaking up with me and the day we got married, a time where I never really stopped loving her, but I could have lost her. I could have lost it two ways. One, because I was a bit of a twit and tried to see somebody else who even she could tell I was making a mistake. Or even worse, Tracy could have been seduced by another man in that time. And I would have been gutted. I was jealous for her. My bride-to-be, I couldn't wait until we had cemented that covenant. I didn't want some more handsome, wealthier, smoother-talking, or whatever guy getting in there. Why am I telling you this story? We're in our third week of the mini-series on 2 Corinthians, and we're looking at the topic, Sphere of Influence. And I'll be unpacking 
Paul's commitment to minister with integrity, to minister with integrity from 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 15. At some point, my story is going to make sense. We're going to be looking at how true ministers protect the primacy of the gospel. By contrast, enemies of the gospel only pretend to do the same. And it's hard to tell the difference. It's harder to discern than you might think. My three points for this morning are, number one, the tempting lure of another gospel and the need to reject it. Number two, Paul's commitment to gospel primacy in his manner of preaching and his manner with money. And number three, evil's deception, disguise, and demise. I'm going to call up Jack, who's going to read from the NIV. I hope you'll put up with a little of my foolishness, but you are already doing that. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you received a different spirit, from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. But I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things that they boast about. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Thank you very much. So we've talked a great deal this year about the super apostles. And here in chapter 11, Paul is writing his defense. It's like he's been backed up against a wall, like he's been snookered by these guys. And he's already denounced self-confident boasting. So if in defending himself, he stoops to their level of self-boasting like he's one of them, he doesn't want to do that. But he, if he doesn't answer their accusations, the accusations of his accusers, the church would be misled into thinking that his opponents are right. So what does he do? In verse 1 he says, I hope you'll put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. So Paul asks them to indulge in some foolishness. And then in this place of foolishness, he does some boasting himself. 
The difference is he's admitting right from the start how ridiculous it is, and as uncomfortable as he is in boasting in his abilities, he is perfectly comfortable in boasting in his weaknesses. He'd much rather do that so that God can get the glory than to boast in his strength and abilities, lest he gets the glory. He's finally starting to build to the climax of his arguments against his opponents. Number one, the tempting allure of another gospel and the need to reject it. Looking at verse two, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I've promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and, and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel for the one, from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Paul is using this powerful illustration, this metaphor, to explain the situation in Corinth. Paul feels like uh, their father who's betrothed them betrothed his daughter, this church in Corinth, to Christ. Betrothal is in some ways very similar to our modern engagement, but it's a much stronger commitment than engagement. And we need to see marriage in their context, in the, in the lens of their culture, not ours, to fully grasp this text. How does it apply to them? And then how can it apply to us? Put your seatbelts on, because this is going to be quite a ride. Marriage, as we know it, is designed by God, right? And God uses marriage to portray the rich narrative of the gospel. In those days, what would happen is the father would choose a bride for his son, and then he would send his son to the bride's father to pay a bride price. Sometimes that involved financial transaction or it involved working for the bride's father. And then once he had paid that price, this betrothal period would commence where they're now set apart for each other, but they're not married yet. And it's a lot more serious than an engagement because to break off a betrothal, you'd actually have to get a certificate of divorce. So a price had been paid. There was a commitment made, right? So the bride was under obligation to fully commit to her groom in that period. Then the son would return to his father's house and he would prepare a place for her. So that often meant on that farm or on that property, he would build a house where they would then live. And then when all the necessary preparations were done, he'd go back to his bride's father, collect his bride, go back to his father's house, and the wedding ceremony and the celebrations would begin and they would have the feast, the marriage feast, and the marriage union. Now, you see, God has chosen a bride for his son in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth to pay the price for his bride. And shockingly, Jesus is going to marry the church. Sinners. The church as one body. And the price he had to pay was to give his life and to die on the cross. That's a heavy price, right? Then he returned to heaven to prepare a place for you and for me, and then one day he will come and fetch us so that we can be where he is. 
So now we wait for his return and for that wedding feast. But until that day comes, those of us that are believers, those of us that have put our faith and our trust in Jesus and accepted what he did on the cross, we're like that bride in that betrothal period. This is the metaphor that Paul presents to the church in Corinth. Paul is like a spiritual parent or or a father of the bride. And in the biblical times, it was the father of the bride's responsibility to protect and secure her purity and to keep her safe. Deuteronomy uh, 22 verses 13 to 21 just spells out that law. Paul promises that she will remain committed to her groom. The price has been paid. Paul explains in verse 2 that as a father, he's betrothed them to one husband. He has pledged them as a body to Jesus. He wants to present them pure. Their wedding will become a reality on Jesus' return, and they'll be united forever. But now there's this period where they need to stay focused exclusively on each other, and that's the biblical principle. You see, marriage does not exist to make you happy. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? Marriage does not exist to make you happy. Marriage exists to teach you to be holy. This desire of a father to look after the purity of his son and his daughter, it still exists in good fathers today. But we see in verse 2, there's a seducer. Paul is blindly jealous for them. Why? Because there's a seducer in their midst. There's another boyfriend who's not her husband-to-be, and he's entered the picture, and he's charming, and he is handsome, and there's something mysteriously attractive about him to the church in Corinth. And the bride's gaze that was fixed on Jesus is magnetically pulled toward this man. And Paul fears that as this father figure, if he doesn't intervene, that the church, that this bride will be led astray from her sincere devotion to Christ. That's what Paul wants here, a sincere, unadulterated devotion to Christ. Paul's ultimate desire throughout the letter of 2 Corinthians is that the church, his spiritual daughter, that she will find her full satisfaction in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. But they're being lured away from Jesus as their supreme treasure. And Paul doesn't want them to dilute their lives. And Paul doesn't want, he knows that this man, the seducer, this guy's bad company, that this other man will lead his daughter first to dissatisfaction, then to disappointment, and then to death. Paul references the Garden of Eden in verse three. So let's consider the Garden of Eden, right? God creates everything, right? Man and woman, And he gives it all to man and woman. He says, you can all of it, absolutely everything, all of this, you can have all of it, and my presence, and my blessing, and in the cool of the evening, I'm going to come and I'm going to walk through this garden with you. It's all yours, but there's just this one tree. Millions of trees, but there's this one tree. Don't, Don't eat the fruit from that tree. You've got no need for that tree, made you millions of trees. I've given you absolutely everything you need. You don't need to eat from that tree, because if you do, you'll surely die. God wants the best for them. If they eat from that tree, they're going to die. You don't need to eat from that tree. Other trees, lots of good fruit. You don't need anything from that tree to satisfy you because I will satisfy you. And what happens next? There's a seducer, right? The serpent. 
And here's what he says. He says, Eve, did God, did God actually say that you'd die, that you can't eat from this tree? Eve answers, but the seducer won't stop. You won't surely die. For God knows if you eat from it, what'll happen? Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will have wisdom. You will know the difference between good and evil, the temptation. And that's what's happening in the church in Corinth, right? And then we read the most devastating verse in all of Scripture, Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and she ate. In the previous chapter in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Paul tells the church, take your thoughts captive. Take your thoughts captive. Eve's thoughts are tempted. It starts in the thought life. Eve's thoughts were overcome. And when we bind to the deceit of the devil in our minds, well, the damage is done. Because at that point, the devil, he can just slither away, and you'll, you're going to do the rest yourself. And God was right. It brought death. All the serpent had to do was convince Eve that God was not good enough. All the serpent had to do was convince Eve that God was not enough. That she needed something else. He didn't force her. He didn't pick the fruit for her. He didn't hand it to her. She took the fruit herself. She took it herself and so did Adam. The devil made me do it. No, he didn't. You didn't. You did it willingly under your own volition. Even if the devil seduced you, you put up with it easily enough. You put up with it easily enough. We have to remember that we are susceptible to the evil one's influence. We must keep our gaze on Christ. We must have a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus, which is why Paul is saying to the church here, this young betrothed church in Corinth is being seduced like Eve by the promises and the gospel of another lover. Paul feels this godly sense of jealousy over the purity of the church for Christ, not the controlling jealousy of an egomaniac or the insecurity of an egomaniac. He's jealous in the sense that he doesn't want her disqualified from her marriage. He's working to see the church return to an exclusive devotion to Jesus. We know from our study in 2 Corinthians that Paul's referring to these super apostles that have come into the church in Paul's absence, and they've discredited Paul's message so that they could replace it with another message, a substitute. What does Paul say they've done? They've proclaimed another Jesus. They've brought another spirit. They've presented another gospel. And you Corinthians have let that happen. You've given them a foothold. You've put up with it easily enough, he says, You've let them plant a false seed in your mind, just like the serpent did. And here's a blueprint for the seducer. Step one, challenge God's word. Did God really say? Is Paul really an apostle of Christ? Can you trust him? Look how weak he is. Look how poor he is. He couldn't possibly be somebody God would use. Do you really think Jesus is the suffering servant prophesied? Did Jesus really say he is the way, the truth, and the life? Step one, undermine God's word, challenge God's word. 
do you really think you'll die, Eve? Eve, God's lying to you, and his word cannot be trusted. Step number two, offer a cheap substitute. Eve, not only is God lying to you, he's withholding something from you. God doesn't want you to eat this fruit because he knows your eyes will be open and you're going to be like God. You're going to be wise like God. You're going to know the difference between good and evil. Eve, you could be a God. Doesn't that sound nice, Eve? Total control goes back to you. Independence, freedom, wisdom. As a God, you can live as you like with no consequence. And it ended in disaster. Not just for them, but for every last offspring that followed. You see, this, this seduction, it's not just the problem for Adam and Eve, nor is it just the problem for the church in Corinth. It's a problem for the church today. For God's word is being undermined, and even today we are being offered a cheap gospel. A cheap version of the gospel, which is no gospel at all, according to Paul. Some of you have been in the Seaburg congregation as long as I have. You can look around for the missing faces. Of those who've been seduced by another gospel. Paul says, look at these guys. These deceivers are dressed in the clothes of Christ. They claim to be servants of the spirit of life, light. Instead, they are servants of darkness. The serpent's talking is smooth and cunning. And Paul's sadness is the church is putting up with it easily enough, putting up with these lies. It's so important to notice the strategy of the enemy is to come dressed as Jesus. Evil doesn't look like the horrible thing that it is. It starts by twisting the truth just a little bit. Another version of the gospel. The Corinthians, they're vulnerable to this gospel because of the desires they have lurking in their hearts because it appeals to their ambitions. This, this grandeur, this desire for grandeur, this counterfeit gospel is particularly enticing to them. We don't know exactly what the super apostles were preaching, but we know it was false. But it wasn't so false. It wasn't so false that it was immediately evident to the church. The gospel made use of the name Jesus, but produced leaders that were arrogant and self-seeking who had no sense of serving the way our crucified Christ served. And we've got to explore some of these counterfeit gospels that are going around the church today. The Gospel Coalition put together an article that states, self-worship is the world's fastest growing religion. In a poll, 84% of those interviewed believe that enjoying life is the highest goal of life. There's also a cheap fake gospel that says everything you need for fulfillment and life and salvation can be found in yourself. You are enough. You're not enough. But this rubbish that we've been bombarded with through our media, even our educational institutions, it's constant. It's all over YouTube. It's on your music playlist. It's all over your social media. It's through influencers. It's proclaimed by motivational speakers, life coaches, therapists. TV series and movies portray it. It's being taught in your schools and studied in your universities. Your HR department in your company confirms and endorses this philosophy, and it even influences your vote. 
A survey in the US amongst 3,000 teenagers, they were interviewed about faith and belief. And these five pillar truths emerged that can be put together as a belief system. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Nice start. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair, as taught in the Bible and most world religions. Number three, of course, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to solve a problem. And good people go to heaven when they die, right? In this world, well, God never goes against the worldview, against what we want for ourselves. He kind of affirms what we're already wanting for ourselves. He doesn't really ask much of us at all. Globally, the church is in trouble. It's being seduced. In his book, The Death of Christian Britain, Callum Brown writes, this book is about the demise of the nation's core religious moral identity. As historical changes go, this has been no lingering and drawn out affair. It took several centuries in what historians called the Dark Ages to convert Britain to Christianity. It's taken less than 40 years for the country to forsake it. Every day in Britain, 300 couples are divorced. Somebody calls the suicide hotline every 14 seconds. The porn industry is one of the biggest industries in Britain worth billions of dollars. Listen to this, there are 30,000 registered clergy in Britain. 30,000 registered clergy in Britain. There are 80,000 registered witches and fortune tellers. Paul's commitment, you've put up with it easily enough. Paul's commitment to gospel primacy in his manner of preaching. He's just getting practical here. He's just really trying to convince them. This is potentially where the Corinthians are just trying to discern the various messages and voices that are coming at them from so many different directions. So in verses 5 to 12, he, Paul is often offering convincing evidence that he's got their best interests at mind, unlike these so-called super apostles. Now, verse 5. I do not think I'm in the least inferior to these super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We've made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Guys, so many of the voices you're listening to on YouTube, they speak really well, but they do not speak with knowledge. Paul has no desire to learn to speak in the ways of these more eloquent super apostles. They were skilled in the arts of the rhetoric of the day and have clearly a powerful way of influencing others, but Paul knows the truth about God. They've got great ways of talking, but Paul has substance in his words. He knows what matters. In 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 2, Paul says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul's confidence is not in his manner of speaking, but in the pure power of the true gospel, and he lets the Spirit do the work in, God's, in people's hearts. He knows it's the power of God that's going to do the heavy lifting. Paul's commitment to gospel primacy in his manner with money. Paul goes on. He doesn't want anything to ruin his testimony with the church. And he knows this is a wealthy church. We've talked about this before. A church that has very wealthy people in it. Verse 7. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you? 
by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. So Paul was not only an incredibly gifted apostle, as mentioned when I preached last, Paul was also excellent in handling money. The Bible is absolutely fine and endorses preachers getting paid. We can see that in 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, and 1 Corinthians 9, 11 to 12. But Paul was willing to lay down this privilege when he needed to. He was not ruled by money, nor was he entitled, nor was he greedy. Why does this matter? It wasn't even because the church in Corinth didn't want to pay them. They were probably mildly offended that he didn't take their money. The church was definitely paying these super apostles, and they were asking a hefty sum of money. But Paul sacrificially took nothing from the Corinthians because he wanted to separate himself from these apostles. He'd rather rob poorer churches than take the Corinthians' money to prove his love for them was not in exchange for financial gain. I'm not loving you for your money. Paul says he robbed churches. He didn't actually rob churches. I don't think he robbed churches. He didn't rob churches. But he didn't want to be a burden to the church in Corinth and misrepresent his intentions. I don't want there to be any obstacle between us. The church in Corinth was in a city of materialism, pride, self-indulgence, and self-confidence. Sound familiar? Paul knew that in that context, to accept payment would have been a deterrent to the gospel. So Paul says, don't worry. I'm in this for free. I'll do it for free. But these guys, these super apostles, they twisted it and they tried to use it against them. They said, no, he's not accepting money because, well, he's not qualified. If you're not qualified, you can't accept money. Or, or maybe he's not accepting money because he's illegitimate, not a real apostle. Paul flips what they're saying on, their head, on its head and he, and he uses it to support the fact that he is who he is. The difference between Paul and these guys is some guys are in ministry because it's their job. And some guys are in ministry because it's their calling. For Paul, this was a divine calling. I'm not writing you this letter because you're paying me to. I'm writing this letter because I'm jealous of you. Because I'm not writing this letter because I'm jealous you're paying them and not me. I don't want you to pay me. The poor church in Macedonia will take care of my financial needs. God's got my daily bread covered. The Macedonians don't need to be convinced of Paul's apostolic ministry, but the Corinthians do. I'm not in it for the money. I'm in it because I'm jealous of you for Christ. I don't want money to be a stumbling block, so I don't ask you to pay me. I've got your best interests at heart. Oh, these guys would love me to take the money because then they'd be just like me. But I'm not going to. Tell you what, see what happens when you stop paying these guys. They'll move on. They'll head out of town. That'll reveal who they really are. Let's get to the climax. Paul wants to unmask these false teachers. Verse 12 to 15. Evil's deception, disguise, and demise. And now, folks, the gloves are going to come off. Paul starts to get seriously angry, and he's going to let loose, right? Verse 12. And I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, 
deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And it's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. Whoa, easy tiger, jeepers. Hey, this is no misunderstanding. These guys are masquerading. They're putting on masks like actors do. They're disguising themselves. These men have changed their appearance, transformed themselves to be deliberately deceitful in an attempt to conceal what they really look like. Earlier in the Gifts That Grow series, we saw that Jesus himself gifted apostles to the local church to grow and equip the church to maturity in Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. Paul is one who, who builds the church. These false apostles, they're not from Christ, but from the devil himself. They deceive and they pretend to be like Paul from Christ, but only in pretense. In reality, their deeds will reveal the source, the true source of their ministry. One of Satan's strategies is to disguise himself. He masks the appearance of his work as good, light, and of God. If he didn't, you'd be able to see through it and you'd reject it. He's skilled at the art of subtlety. We must be like Paul, mindful of the deception of the devil to our generation, and be like Paul to call a spade a spade. There's the well-known uh, quote from the French poet Charles Boulier who said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Paul said it should come as no surprise that these guys disguise themselves because the devil himself disguises himself. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. There's a follow-up quote to that. The second greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he was the good guy. To return to our marriage illustration, that Prince Charming is certainly magnetic as he calls you to abandon a sincere devotion to Christ. But as you fall into the arms of the seducer, you'll come to realize that he is nothing more than a horrible monster who has overpromised and cannot deliver on his promises, just like Eve experienced. John 7, 17 and 18, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who speaks to the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. There's so many convincing voices today that preach a different Jesus to the Jesus of the New Testament, that preach a different gospel to the gospel of the New Testament. And I'm not just referring to the historic cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the so-called Christian scientists or the Mormonisms or, or any of the other isms, but they're typical in how they proclaim, yes, Jesus, but more. Yes, Jesus, but more. You need more than Jesus. They preach Jesus is not enough. Nor am I referring to the so-called New Ages and their teachings that flood our media. I'm referring, as Paul does in this Corinthian letter, to the preachers and the teachers and the writers who present to Christ and proclaim a gospel that either dilutes or diverts from the clear, uncompromised, rock-solid truth of God's inspired, inerrant word. Beware of an easy gospel, a health, wealth, 
and prosperity gospel, a popular gospel, a miracle a minute gospel, a bloodless gospel, a gospel without repentance, a gospel that bypasses the cost of true discipleship and a total surrender to our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how easy it is? They're seducers vying for our attention and they're not hitting us over the head with a hammer. They're whispering softly in our ears. So we slowly turn our heads and before we know it, we're in the same position as Eve. And we take that fruit and then we pass it on to someone who trusts us. I recently had something very sad shared on my Facebook that presented Jesus initially really well as this radical iconoclast, which he was, and the post was really convincing, but by the end of it, it had Jesus as anti-church and anti-Christian. It's at a rubbish, and so far from the gospel of the New Testament, but it was being shared and liked, and people were putting up with it easily enough. Let us not forget what Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 21, not every, in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. As we start to land, if the band want to come up, I'm not sure if we're going to sing, but how do we discern? How do we tell the difference? Well, the answer is in verse 4. They preach another Christ, they come with another spirit, and a different gospel. Do you remember in the old days when you'd go to the bank, there'd be a lot of people counting money. Generally, it would be a, a group of ladies at the back there. I mean, if I'm counting money, I'll go like 5,400, 5,500, 5,560, 5,500. Uh, 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 5, you know, but these ladies, they go, they'd count 10,000, 10,000, counterfeit, they'd hold it up, not a real note, they'd lay it aside, they're amazing, counterfeit, and you know how they knew what a counterfeit was, they didn't study counterfeit notes, they handled the real thing every single day hour after hour, day after day, year after year, and then they could tell a counterfeit. If you want to tell a counterfeit, get your head into the real thing. Get to know the gospel. We need to read what's written in red in this book, because that's the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. When we hear something that's not the truth, our ears should prick up. And then we need to look at this new teaching under the microscope of the gospel, you cannot take away from it, and you cannot add to the gospel. We need to test every message, not against what the world thinks, not against what you think or what I think or, or what we think sounds or feels right. No, we test every message against what Jesus said, and we read that in His Word, and the Word of God is incarnate, which means He became flesh. God revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. Everything we need to know is revealed in Jesus. So the litmus test for the deceiver is to ask them, what do you say about Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? 
And if anybody offers you anything other than the Jesus of the Gospels, they are not from God. They are from the devil, even if they don't know it themselves. As for believers, hey, let's fix our eyes on Jesus as we eagerly await the glorious wedding night. Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his own, eager to do what is good. Let's pray. Our Father God, it's so easy for us to take our gaze off you. Help us, Lord God, to just keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us to just reread the Gospels, just everything that's written and read. Just absorb it and believe it and know it so that we can identify so quickly a counterfeit Jesus, another spirit, and a different Gospel. Look after your church, Lord God, we pray. We worship you, amen. Let's stand as we respond to that challenging and beautiful message.